HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Meat and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meat and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of, you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chef's grandmothers. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And it's no secret that America has had a long-running love affair with cookies. You name it, cookies, biscuits, whatever you called them, past, present. And of course, then along came big business, and there was advertisers who made us fall in love with all kinds of all kinds of brands of cookies, and you know their names. Keebler and their Little Elves, Pepperidge Farm, Famous Amos, Pillsbury, Little Debbie, Archway, Snack. Stop me when I get to your favorite, Snackwell, Mrs. Fields, Walkers, Newtons, Newmans. I'm sure there are so many more that I'm missing, but of course I couldn't leave out. Nabisco. The world's best-selling cookie just recently celebrated their 100th anniversary about, I guess, about 12 years ago, 10 years ago, 8 years ago, whatever. Uh, and it, actually, it was on in, 2000, in 1912. No, so it was 2022, 2008. You tell, Michael will tell me. My guest today knows everything. I'm relying on him. 
Oreos celebrated their 100th anniversary a few years ago, start from the top end. And it is really a testament, I don't think necessarily to the cookie itself, probably more to the advertising of this big business. But it's interesting that around that cookie and several other cookies grew manufacturers, factories that were set up precisely to make all these delectable little sweet treats. And interestingly enough, crackers too, figure the same thing. Ovens, uh, extruders, whatever. But we'll get to that and we'll talk to that. And Oreo still remains, I mean, it is the iconic cookie, I think, the manufactured cookie. Of course, a chocolate chip cookie would be the homemade cookie, right? That's what we all love and think of and and can smell in our dreams. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. But Oreo is is the cookie that kind of took the market on. I did a little informal polling um, of friends and phone calls and Facebook and and hands down, Chips Ahoy and Oreo came in at the top. And interestingly enough, both Chips Ahoy and Nabisco and, and Oreos are made by Nabisco. And they happen to be the number one and number two best-selling cookie in America. Oreos being number one, Chips Ahoy number two. And there are so many other cookies that are so popular. And here to talk with me about this sweet craze and love affair and the history, of course, of the Oreo is the guy who knows all things sweet, the sweet guy himself, Michael Crandall. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much. Michael is a food writer and an artist, no stranger to my show, and he's the author of Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, and A Taste of Conquest, The Rise and Fall of the Three Great Cities of Spice, The Donut, uh, senior editor of uh, Sugar and Sweets, and the list goes on. And he's written for so many magazines, um, and uh, publications as well as editing another encyclopedia for Oxford, Encyclopedia of Food and Drink. And Michael, whenever I have anything to talk about that includes sweetness, I always think of you first. So, so glad you could come on the show today. I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this love affair with cookies. We talked a little bit before the show went on, and... and you, interestingly enough, were not subject or not subjected to that whole um, onslaught of advertising and, and the craze of the manufactured cookie. Well, I, I didn't grow up in the United States. So for me, Oreos are this kind of curious anthropological item that I'm fascinated by kind of as... You know, someone coming to a different culture might be fascinated by strange local food habits. Um, <laughs> and because the Oreo is in some ways so central to American ideas of childhood at this point and is so kind of linked with it, um, it is, you know, as an anthropologist almost, you think of it as so loaded with signification to for, for, for everyone here. Um, I've never acquired the taste, I must confess. Um, but I understand the pleasure of having watched my daughter who grew up here, <laughs> seeing the pleasure of separating the cookie and the rituals that go along with that. And, and licking that filling. Licking that filling. 
which uh, was promoted by the Nabisco company in the 1950s in their ads. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so much of it does have to do with um, Nabisco kind of taking um, a cookie, a cookie, a biscuit. They wouldn't have called it a cookie at the time. A biscuit that was originally intended for um, kind of upper middle class ladies entertaining, a having tea, tea snack. a yeah. tea snack, right. uh, transforming that into a childhood treat. And, you know, this happens like many of these things after the Second World War, because it is only after the Second World War that you can reach children directly through television. Right. Prior to that, advertising went to adults because children didn't read. Um, or well, would, in fact, in fact, the, the Oreos we were talking about, the Oreos were originally um, marketed and, and advertised to women. Oh, absolutely. Housewives. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. No, I actually, just before coming in here, I sort of looked at an ad in a 1927 Good Housekeeping. And if I, if you don't mind, I'll just read a very, very brief bit of it. So these are impromptu desserts. When you have been kept later than you expected at the bridge game. <laughs> matinee or whatnot, and have failed to make your dessert in advance. What can be so comforting as that biscuit shelf at home replete with a variety of goodies? And then they, the Nabisco goes on to talk about their marshmallow assorted, their Oreo sandwiches. Note that they're called Oreo sandwiches. They're not called cookies. They're not called biscuits. Oreo sandwiches, chocolate minarets, um, chocolate pecan creams, all very sophisticated. Hmm. Interesting. But let's, but Nabisco now, Nabisco started out making, uh, the National Biscuit Company started out making other things. Let's take a few steps back where Oreos and how Oreos originated, what we can find out and what we can, what yeah. we know. Um, right. So Nabisco is, there was this trend in the late 19th century of trusts, that is various companies uh, buying each other out or colluding um, to create giant corporations, the Sugar Trust was created. There was, of course, the famous uh, Petroleum Trust created by the Rockefellers. Um, and there was, in fact, a Biscuit Trust that came together in the late 19th century. Eventually, several companies from across the country combined into the National Biscuit Company, thus Nabisco, the National <laughs> Biscuit Company. Um, that was consolidated eventually at the beginning of the 19th century and moved to New York City because... One forgets this, but New York City was a major food manufacturing hub because you'd get sugar coming in here from the Caribbean, Cuba, and places like that. You would get grain coming in here from the Midwest. They'd put it back together, you know, they'd put it together in various edible forms and ship it out to the rest of the country. Hmm. So some of the largest uh, Nabisco's big competitor and the people who claim that they actually came up with the sandwich cookie... Um, had a giant factory out uh, in New York City, in Long Island City, and it was, at the time, the largest factory it in was, the world. I've seen drawings of it. Right. I don't think they were actual pictures. Right, they were right. drawings. And huge. huge. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Now it's located in uh, in the, well, where the, the Chelsea Market is located in what was the Nabisco? That's the Nabisco, Nabisco yeah, factory. that's the yeah. Nabisco. And... Um, it was actually uh, this other company, the Lose Wills Company, that claims they came up with the original version, uh, version the virgin version, <laughs> uh, the version, the original version of the sandwich cookies and the so-called Hydrox cookie, which Hydrox. precedes right. an, 
precedes uh, Oreos by a couple of years. Um, and we're talking uh, turn of the century, right? So Hydrox is 1908, Oreo is 1912. Right. Um, to what degree they one company ripped off the other is uh, is a long simmering mm, argument that yeah. I don't have the solution to. Now, was Hydrox made by the Sunshine Baking Company? Where does Sunshine come in? Sunshine was wasn't Sunshine a company making Sunshine Specialties was the name of the overall brand. Uh, there was an owned by the Loose Willis Biscuit Company. So I mean, <laughs> there's multiple sort of names on names on names that have to do with marketing. So, you know, Nabisco creates all these names for stuff. Yeah. Well, there was um, interesting story, but there, but there was, it's a well-known um, uh, fact on how Nabisco had to change the formula for the cream filling in the cookies. Um, and that's why Hydrox was always sort of staying abreast for a while. Well, right? the original the original uh, formula, as best as I know, contained lard. Right. And that became an issue uh, for a variety of reasons. Right. It was not kosher. And, yeah. And, would, you know, and so they, uh, Hydrox did not use the lard, so they continued to have a market share. They, they did. There. They did. Uh, they, the Hydrox disappeared at one point, and they reappeared in the last decade or so. I'm not really sure if they're still available today. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we we don't even know where the name comes from, do we? Oreo? No, this is the this is actually given that it is the world's most popular cookie. You know, four hundred and fifty billion sold in the twentieth right. century. Um, we don't actually know where the name comes from. There's lots of speculation, but there's no documents of any of this. You know, it's probably a bunch of people you know sitting in the back of the bakery saying, "Oh, well," because naming was very important. Um, Nabisco made its its name, <laughs> its fortune in those days with something called a Unita biscuit. That's right, Unita biscuit, <laughs> um, which was vastly more popular than anything like an Oreo. Yeah, it was more of really a very plain, um, very like childlike kind of a digestive biscuit, type, like a digestive biscuit. biscuit. Right. Yeah, yeah. But chocolate wasn't a super popular flavor in those mm. days, so it really took um, chocolate taking off as a significant flavor because originally they made um, they made Oreos both in a vanilla and a chocolate version which has since been reintroduced but right. it was dropped I think in the 1920s or something like that um, but chocolate wasn't super popular until really Hershey's made chocolate bars ubiquitous yeah and then people got used to eating chocolate and then then chocolate cookies whether they were chocolate chip chocolate wafer cookies what have you became much more popular. Um, oh, it changed the industry. You know, yeah. yeah, after the wars, in part because the the uh, servicemen came back having had lots and lots of Hershey's chocolate bars or later M&M's um, as part of their service packets. Huh, interesting. The, um, the, the versions that you mentioned that they are still making, they brought back the vanilla version that they made originally. Um, they've tried in you know, their marketing campaigns, so many different. Oh, versions. these days I can't even keep, keep up. <coughs> and even if I could keep up next week, there's going to be something else coming yeah. out there. But you know, that has to do with shelf space on supermarkets shelves, right? So that if you have only Oreos, they will take up X amount of space. If you have 16 different kinds of Oreos, they will take up the entire aisle. Well, it's interesting. Even their chips, Ahoy, they have many different varieties of of those cookies but back to the oreos they then they came out with the double stuffed and the super stuffed and then the thin ones and 
and the now there's flavored a, ones. Right. And now, now because it is so kind of embedded in the culture, of course, you have fried Oreos at Ooh. theme parks and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, country fairs. Yes, Absolutely. Yes, deep fried Oreos. Never had one of those. And then there was the milk campaign. And I mean, what better way to push drinking a glass of milk than dunking your Oreo in the Well, milk, it's right? really hard to convince parents, or to be more accurate, mothers that Oreos are good for you. Yeah. <laughs> and so how do you do that? Well, you say that, okay, if you have Oreos and you dunk them in milk, all of a sudden you've turned something that is, you know, sugar and fat um, with a little bit of carbs to hold it all together into something that supposedly is good for you. So it becomes a wholesome afternoon snack instead of just being sugar and Crisco. Well, you mentioned um, uh, the the word and the and the naming and and where the word or the origins of the word. Of course, we know we have the Dutch to thank for our act, more or less our word cookie. We do, we do. No, I mean <coughs> the word cookie um, is a Dutch loan word. Uh, it shows up. I actually before this uh, before this. Um, episode i did a little bit of digging in old dictionaries and it actually shows up in uh, scottish dictionaries oddly enough so it may have been prevalent even in scotland in the early days cool as a but very okay. specifically very specifically as a dutch loan word they specifically say that and it was very much of what seems to be a regionalism in the new york city hudson valley area because of course this is where the dutch settlement was and shows up quite early um in various documents and always sort of as Oh, look at this funny word that they use in this part of the country because they would have in New England used the word biscuit or jumbles or yeah. And wafer. it was more like what cook, cook, cook. I don't, I'm going to pronounce it all wrong, but cook, yeah. Or cook, I think it yeah. would, and <laughs> I should say because <laughs> Dutch is pronounced in a way that I don't understand. But as best as I know, it's kick, yeah. Kick, yeah. Um, All right, that's close. It's close enough. It's close enough. But it doesn't become kind of the standard word until the second half of the 19th century. Interesting, Uh, yeah. And biscuit, of course, was um, little cakes were called biscuits, and they were sweet. And if you look back to America's first cookbooks, Amelia Simmons and and, uh, those books, they were biscuits were always not savory necessarily they were sweet and they were like cookies. well biscuit you know biscuit it comes from the french biscuit, biscuit. twice cooked and they were hardtack they were originally stuff that sailors and soldiers would have in fact one of the reasons that the popularity of something like the biscuit was possible because during the civil war uh large companies started manufacturing huge quantities of these biscuits which were um more like crackers really um so the soldiers, the soldiers on the um, on the northern front would get all these supplies, and they got used to eating these biscuits, which presumably were not quite as reprehensible as the biscuits the sailors got in the 18th century, which were all wormy and horrible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but hardtack. I mean, they put hardtack in the back of their packs, and hard is. You know, oh, sure, sure, an yeah. understatement. Right, we could right. break a tooth but, on but those. In, but in the same way that you know, in the same way that in Italy, biscotto originally meant hardtack, and right. it turned into a you know this delightful cookie. Right. In England, the original biscuit turned into a biscuit, which was still the hardtack, which eventually turned into a, the English word for a cookie. And even today, the British use primarily yeah. the word biscuit. So we're placing Oreos around nineteen. 
1912 for Oreos. 1912 for Nabisco, right. Yeah, they get their patent in 1912. The sandwich cookies. And boy, they are making the comeback in modern baking as well. I love, uh, you know, Stella Parks, she's the brave tart. Um, yeah, well, there's all these, to, there's all yeah. these like um, kind of hipster versions, retakes of, of classic, or retro of classics, desserts. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about the manufacturing of biscuits and cookies when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Hi, I want to take this opportunity to tell you about one of Bob's Red Mill's great products. They have so many terrific flowers and seeds and grains. But something that I didn't realize they carried until I happened to notice it on the shelf in the grocery store the other day was masa harina. And I was so happy that I found it. Masa harina is, masa actually is a Spanish word for dough, and it is a corn flour. So it's a, it's a nice, it's not ground too finely, but it's fine enough that it's wonderful to use for tortillas and uh and what I particularly like making with, I'm a little intimidated to make my own tortillas. Am I going to get them thin enough? Am I going to get them round enough? Are they going to look just right? But what I make without trepidation are tamales with the masa harina. And a lot of people think, oh, but that's such a difficult thing to make. And you know, it's not, it takes a little bit of prep time, but the masa harina makes such a, a wonderful base for any filling that you come up with. So whether you're making a chicken, you know, if you have leftovers too, you can turn it into some um, a saucy pulled pork, a saucy chicken or, or beef. And the tamales really come together very quickly. You might have to make a special effort to go out and buy your corn husks, but um, the tamales, you just take a few cups, depending on how many you're making. Don't follow my proportions here. I'm just giving you the ideas of taking the masa harina, a few cups of the masa harina, add like for four cups, add a teaspoon of baking powder and maybe a half a teaspoon of salt and mix that all together. Then stir up some lard and a chili paste. Now, if you don't like lard, you can always use shortening, um, butter, but mix that into them until it's a little kind of fluffy with your chili paste. And then add some broth, whatever broth you're making, whatever matches the filling that you're using in your tamale. And you smear some of that on your corn husk and then put the filling in the center and fold it up. Oh, I can taste it now. Bob's Red Mill, always making great products. And you can find these and other products on their website at bobsredmill.com and use the code Taste Pod for 25% off your order. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Michael Crandall, the knower of all things sweet in history. And Michael, um, you know, we established the um, the Oreo, but what, when when did companies when did do you have any idea when the first commercialized cookie, cracker, biscuit, whatever? I mean, they had sure they were in Britain. Um, the early industrialization of food comes in Britain, and they are, begin to produce things like shortbread, uh, which we you know think of. Oh, wouldn't it be delightful to make some shortbread at yeah. home? But in fact, it was initially hugely um, industrialized because you could industrialize it. Um, and then various kinds of tea biscuits were also created, 
which is where you know the idea that Nabisco got got these ideas to begin with. One of the interesting things about the manufacture of all of these things in the UK, say in the 1850s, 60s, and so on, is most of the work was done by women and children. <laughs> so these factories were notorious for child labor. Um, you know, you think of producing these lovely little sweet tea biscuits that you can have, you know, in the afternoon for high tea. Um, but in fact, the, the, the working conditions were pretty awful. Mm. Um, in the United States, uh, it, things became, I think, more automated. Um, and there was more of, um, it was later. There, there was more industrial sort of advance at that point. Um, so I don't know that Nabisco necessarily had child labor, although child labor laws were certainly not non-existent at that point when yeah. they were making well, I just, Oreos. I don't know if you've ever toured a, a baking factory or any, any kind of food manufacturer or, or even oh, sure, yeah. any factory. I mean, I just love it. I think that it's just, I, I could stare at those machines doing whatever they do, whether it's the extruders or the ones that poke the little holes right. to and, perforate and, and, the yeah, crackers. Or and, and particularly when it comes to something like this, it, there's a Willy Wonka aspect to absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just, uh, it's fascinating to me. And um, the, I don't see any end to it, except that now I am seeing, um, I mean, obviously we were talking um, earlier that uh, commercially made cookies, of course, are not nothing. Well, no cookie is really. You could, as you said before, it's not a health food. You don't. No, you don't no. pretend that you're eating something. No, whether healthy. it is made, you know, with artisanal butter and you know, hand harvested sugar, uh, it's still just as bad for you, quite frankly, <laughs> right. as the stuff that you buy when you yeah, open the I mean, package you know, with a few preservatives in it. Although companies, I think, are taking strides to, you know, to. Make you know they have low sugar. Well, I think that that for example, Oreos had to get rid of the hydrogenated fat. When yeah, the that trans was fats, right? The trans fat. So I think they had to reformulate things. Um, now, of course, there's you know issues with um, with palm oil, which is going into many of these things, and uh, it, there will always be, I think, issues. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting about Oreos is the with you know with globalization of tastes or with globalization comes globalization of tastes and Oreos, which I never, ever remember seeing in Europe are now ubiquitous. Oh, yeah. uh, you find them everywhere. Oh yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what that next generation around the world um, of little kids who've grown up with Oreos, what their reaction to these things is. If it is like that of Americans or whether um, they're just like one of these many things that they might have as a childhood snack. Yeah, it's it's interesting and a little sad too. Sometimes when you, you know, in traveling and um, walking into a supermarket and or you know a, a fat, you see a McDonald's fast food sure. place. I mean, kind of like exported all the worst things of America to these other countries. But looking at supermarket shelf supermarkets, which were large supermarkets, which were slow to come to many of the countries. There are now, just like here in America... Oh, they are. They an are. entire aisle devoted to um, cookies. And not not just Oreos. I mean, their own no, cookies, No, no, no. Everyone's cooking. Right, Every right. And the, the reality of it is that, you know, it's probably Mandalay is, is uh, controlling one half of the cookie market and well, Nestle is controlling the other half. And that's what and I none of these to... And none of these are based... Many of these are not based in the United States. Right. And who is this... Behemoth Mandalay. Mandalay has bought 
Nabisco, that's the, right. the Oreo portion of it now, right? That's the right. And portion. as best as I know, and again, these things seem to change every three years. So I may be <laughs> 10 years, years out of day. Yeah. Because with mergers and acquisitions, this is constantly changing. But the last I heard Mandalay was a, a, a an Anglo-Dutch concern. So even the companies aren't even based in a single country anymore. Oh, wow. I noticed, I, I read the other day where Tate's, not the other day, a few months ago, Tate's, which was a, a local Long Island baking company that produced kind of like tasted almost like homemade chocolate chip cookies. You know, that's almost like homemade is, is one of the <laughs> the brands. I mean, one of the things to, to market it. Um, and I considered it sort of a small entity, mm-hmm. right? Mondelez bought that. There you go. Yeah. Mondelez I mean, is swallowing up everything left, right, indeed, and center. Indeed, indeed. Well, Even the name doesn't seem to have a location. I mean, note that. Mondelez. It, it's, yeah. it's not in a language. It ends in a Z. Mondelez. <laughs> yeah, right. It, and the, but the Oreos, I mean, it, it makes sense since you had just mentioned they're all over the world. They're in, yes. in all the countries. Over 100 countries mm-hmm. are, they are distributed and sold. I mean, like Coca-Cola, you know, it's like. Can't or like Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's now too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben and Jerry's. But wait, who bought Greece. them? Uh, ben and Jerry's was bought by Unilever, and I oh. have to say that you know sometimes these things aren't so bad because now you can get Ben and Jerry's in uh, Germany if you want it, and uh, it's the same good Ben and Jerry's. Hmm. Okay, now back to Oreos, and you said you enjoyed watching your daughter. You, you knew your daughter enjoyed eating the Oreos. You never really acquired a taste for them, but. Those who do eat them or have eaten them in their childhood, everyone has their own way of eating them. Are you a dunker? Uh, you're asking about me. You. <laughs> um, I'm not a dunker, no. and I'm not a dunker in general. And you so wrote the book on donuts? <laughs> I wrote the book on donuts, and my conviction is the only reason you dunk a donut is if it's old. Uh-huh. And okay. I don't want an old donut. <laughs> There's no reason to dunk a fresh donut. So I sort of feel a little bit the same way about cookies. I, I don't like the mushy texture that you get mm-hmm. from dunking. Uh, I like the crispness. I, I'm just not a dunker. Do you split it apart and eat the filling first? You know, again, I'm probably a really bad person to ask about this. Uh, I can speak to to my daughter who does split it and <laughs> eat out the inside and then eats the rest of it. Um, I just, I think the last time I ate an Oreo was about 30 years ago. I can't even remember when the last time I was, but I do know they're around a lot with grandchildren. Oh, absolutely. Children, you know, yeah, so yeah, I know. Yeah. And it, it seems to... Go down the middle of the road. I mean, you know, like some some split, some don't. And interestingly enough, the main reason that my daughter was introduced to Oreos is because her grandmother would buy them for her. Because uh-huh. of course, I was a I was a dessert fascist in my home. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, if it's not homemade, apfelstrudel, right. you're not having it, child. <laughs> but uh, you know, her grandmother would sneak her Oreos when I wasn't looking. Hmm. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm kind of that way, too, about homemade cookies. I mean, I don't really... Ask me what my favorite brand of cookies are. Yeah, I can remember some good ones. I like Girl Scout cookies. We didn't even talk about Girl Scout cookies. A lot of people I, I asked liked... Their, their, some of their favorite cookies were Girl Scout cookies brands. Well, now, Girl Scouts were done in small regional bakeries and ovens for a long time, and, and they've, over the years, been bought out and been... 
well, sold to as far as the cooking places to bigger companies, right? I think Girl Scout cookies are a perfect example of the same idea as the Oreo, which is that it isn't really what they taste like, it's what they represent. Mm -hmm. But that taste then, it goes back and forth, right? So you taste something and then all of a sudden your memory goes back to the time when you used to have a lot of it, if it was positive, right? And then you have a positive association with the taste and there's this kind of circle of associations, right. circle of signification. So, you know, taste, smell are the strongest um, sense. Uh, they, they bring a memory better than other senses. And particularly do. sweet. And particularly sweet. And children, um, it's been statistically documented Children don't have an upper limit for sweetness, so that um, a, you add sugar and more sugar and more sugar and more sugar, and a child will not say uncle. Hmm. Whereas an adult at one point will say, this is too sweet. And apparently that develops at some point in adolescence. But to a child, there's no such thing as too sweet, which is, you know, one reason I would say that um, Girl Scout cookies um, are beloved of children because Girl Scout cookies are super, super, super sweet. I don't yes. know if you've had one recently. I have. No. I kind of like um, imagining the research that went into figuring that out. Like I picture them having like a bunch of kids in a room and just giving them cookies <laughs> and, tell, and, just, and them looking at each other like, they're not stopping. They're not stopping. They can just keep going. And, that's our new engineer, Gnome, who just couldn't help himself. <laughs> but he's an anthropologist, so it pers- makes perfect sense. <laughs> right. I just sit in a room with my sit in a room with my own kids when they were growing up, and it was like, well, you have to put the brakes on at some point for them. You're right. There is. I mean, it, it, there's no boundary. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. And of course, now that when you ply children with uh, various kinds of sodas, uh, there's especially no boundary. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, back to the Oreo, um, and. And it translates to the rest of the of the cookie industry, I would imagine. Oreos were not, I mean, the, the Nabisco Oreo was a takeoff on the Hydrox cream sandwich cookie. Maybe Not if you ask them. Oh, <laughs> I, there, was, it, there was this battle. I know. It was oh, there was, battle. there was, there was, yeah. yeah. Ever a lawsuit? Did they? Did I don't think it lawsuit? ever actually got quite that far. Um because there, sure. there, there's probably you know sufficient differences that uh, the trademark and you can't, as far as I know, you can't copyright a food. You can only copyright a trademark. Right, and recipe. We know recipes are, are uh, very, recipes very are difficult impossible to, to, they're to impossible copyright. To copy. yeah. Yeah, they're impossible I put an extra grain of salt in mine, so it's my recipe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, because I, the reason I asked about that, which you know, who had the very first? Because then, since that day, there have been replications galore of this. Sandwiched, you know, um, the sandwich cookie, cookie with black wafers. Right. And Newman's, Newman's has their own mm-hmm. from, supposedly mm-hmm. health conscious, <laughs> which I don't even. Know oh, how you to go get to health, yeah, to you go to a health food store, and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, supposedly good for you Oreos. But again, you know, these are made with the evaporated cane juice, which, as far as I know, is just sugar. Still sugar, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and Nabisco just didn't stop with. Oreos, of, of course, course not. And Unita, the Unita biscuit, and oh, animal crackers too. They, they, they were really one of the very first, weren't they? Not absolutely. And again, just before coming in here, I sort of looked up briefly what they were making, you know, uh, in the era of the First World War, and 
They made arrowroot biscuits. Yeah. They made champagne wafers. They made um, five o'clock tea biscuits. They made um, Oswego biscuits, whatever they were. They were making saltines, of course. Um, Unita, and so on and so on and so on. Um, some 20, 30 products, some of which were sweet, some of which were more cracker-like. Yeah, and the animal crackers, I think, uh, well, Fig Newtons, that was in their own company, but Fig Newtons and animal crackers really were very, very early um, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brands yeah. of cookies or, yeah. or types yeah. of cookies yeah. that were awesome. And again, with animal crackers, you really were at that point aiming them at children. Oh, yeah. Um, because they could play with them and, you know, all those sorts of things. And I do think that it's that play aspect, that ritual aspect, that to some degree being able to control the way you eat something, which to a child is unusual. Most children are told or were used to be told you have to eat it like this. Don't play with your food. Don't play with your food. Right. And here's a food that you are supposed to play with you know nabisco telling you on television that you child should it's be playing with this food. okay to split it right. in half so it's, it's okay n- to dunk it in your milk right and, so it's know. also transgressive i mean you yes know. mommy they said that i could do this yep yep oh and our love affair goes on <laughs> I'm, I mean, and as i was starting to say you know i'm i I'm not big on the packaged cookies. You know, put it in front of me, I probably will mm-hmm. have one if I have my cup of tea. But I do like homemade cookies or biscuits. And, of course, they're not always available. And then who's going to stop and bake a whole batch of them if I'm trying to get other things done? So that limits my intake. Of course, of <laughs> right course, of course. Sugar. Yeah. But it's, um, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, cookies are have their place in... In, well, I think, you know, I, I, I think pleasure is underrated. Um, you need to get, you need pleasure from your food, not yeah. merely nutrition. Right. Um, does that mean that you want pleasure at all times, 24-7? It's less pleasurable when you get it 24-7. <laughs> Ask anyone who works in a bakery and what exactly. do they want? They, they probably desire a cheeseburger. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Michael, as always, it has been a pleasure. A pleasure on radio talking about sweet things, and I get my pleasure in lots of ways. And that's and talking to you about the sweets is always one of them. And it's a low calorie, low calorie treat. Ah, there you go. <laughs> okay, and thanks for listening once again. This has been a taste of the past. Meat and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meat and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of, you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So... This is, this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene, personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chef's grandmothers. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be 
anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts.